It's Chump. I just saw the most amazing thing in my entire life. First, you gotta do the truffle shuffle. Come on! Welcome back to another episode of Growing Up Punk, a podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. I am one of the hosts, Aaron, and it's uh, just me today, as I'm, uh, or we're going to be getting into an interview here in a few minutes, and so I just wanted to um, touch base and welcome you here. If this is your first time listening, then thank you so much for, for checking out the show. If you want more info on other episodes, you can find us on all of your favorite podcast networks. Um, you can find us on social media at Growing Punk Pod on Instagram and Twitter. So go there and check us out. Send us a message. Leave us some comments. Um, if you are a longtime listener, thanks so much for coming back. We greatly appreciate you. And we hope you really enjoy this uh, really cool interview that I got to do with um, two of the guys from the band Slick Shoes. So I was able to um, talk with Jackson and Jeremiah of the band Slick Shoes. If you're not familiar with them, uh, they are a poppy skate punk band from the mid-90s. And they are, will or will be, at the end of September, releasing their first new album in 17 years. So there's been quite a, a break between their last release and this one. And it's going to be an awesome one. And so if uh, you haven't checked them out, go check them out on your streaming services. They have a new song out. And it's amazing, and they're going to be releasing new ones in the coming weeks, so keep your eye on that. Um, yeah, this was a, a really fun conversation to have. This is a very influential band for me, and so it was awesome to get to sit down and, and get some inside info on um, all of their albums. So we go through their whole discography. We touch on um, you know, what it was like touring, getting signed, um, working with different producers, getting to be in a studio with the band all practicing in there. And, uh, yeah, we get lots of really, really cool tidbits about, you know, what it was like being a band, you know, in that era where there was no social media and all that kind of stuff versus now where, you know, it's all streaming. There's lots of great stuff in this. So um, I hope you really enjoy this conversation, and we will check you next time. Well, thanks so much, guys, for making the time to be here. This has been a, a long time coming, maybe one of the most anticipated conversations I've ever had. So thanks for making it happen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so we've got Jackson and Jeremiah from the band Slick Shoes on tonight. And Hello. Is, yeah, yeah, welcome. How you doing? From sunny California. Ish. It's more like hot California. Oh, okay, it's not sunny. Well, it's sunny and burning hot. Okay, Unless you well, where Jeremiah's at, he just moved. He's by the beach. Well, stinking, yeah, getting getting the best of uh, both worlds, hey. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a move we we wanted to make for a long time. So it's uh, it's actually nice, man. Get, be, actually, be able to go outside and do some stuff. So I'm not hating it. Oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, well, this is, you know, like I was just saying, this has been a, a long time coming. You guys are a band that's, you know, been really influential for for myself and, and David, who, who co-hosts the show with me, and, I mean, tons of other people. So it's, you know, this is a, a dream come true to be uh, talking with you guys and getting some inside info on, on the albums that were, were so influential on us. That's very kind of you to say, man. Like, appreciate that for sure. Um, and, it, I mean, it means a lot to us, too, you know, on our end, like, we don't we don't do these things a lot, so I just appreciate you asking us to even do the show. Yeah, well, of course, awesome. So we're just gonna go through all of your guys's records and just kind of touch base on each. And I'm I'm always super interested to kind of hear all the maybe nerdy little tidbits about about albums that maybe lots of music fans don't necessarily pick up on, but. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to kind of, to kind of hear your thoughts on these. So let's, uh, let's start with, uh, the Slick Shoes EP that was released on January 21st, 1997. Does that seem like uh, another lifetime ago? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I'm bad at math, but, you know, 25, 25 years or something like that? or Shoot. Uh, yeah, it, I guess, yeah. It, yeah, it's been a minute. So when you guys recorded this, how old were these songs by that point? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremiah, but I don't think those songs were more than six months old. No, I, they were. I think they were even newer than that. Some of them. I think two of them might have been a couple months old, and a couple we'd probably written a week or two before. Yeah, that sounds right. Wow. And what? And when you guys wrote these and recorded them, like, what? Well, what was the hopes with these at this point? I mean, you guys are were really young. Was it? Were you recording it with the hopes of trying to get signed, or kind of how did that all happen? Well, for me, I think everybody that was recording any music at the time probably hoped to get signed when we did the ep i mean like no effects punk and drublick was huge and we were all big punk fans and just music fans in general and we wanted to make music as well um we're big fans of like mxpx face to face Lagwagon, um strung out descendants of course all and um i think that our goal when we were writing that was just to sort of learn the genre as well as just um you know, become a band together and develop and grow as, as musicians. We started writing together and recording, etc. Um, I don't think the goal was ever to, you know, not get signed, but also we just, we were playing together, you know, guys get together and have poker night or, you know, watch football or, you know, start a punk band, whatever. So that was kind of the goal at the time, in my opinion. For, for these, like when you guys wrote these, how how long had you guys been a band by this point already? Oh god, that was probably six months or a year, maybe. 
So was this kind I mean, of the first official release you guys had done? Um, the EP? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we had done a couple demos um, prior to that, um, and it was mostly just circulated locally, um, the first one. And then the second one was actually the one we sent to Tooth and Nail, um, and that was what they signed us based off of, was that, that uh, second EP, or second demo, I guess. Um, Ryan was literally learning the songs, like he was literally learning the lyrics as he was singing and, re- and recording them. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So you guys just sent that in, and that's that's kind of how everything happened or how did you guys get in touch with tooth and nail actually i think somebody else sent it in for us yeah i, I forgot right. his name mark mark morrison might have been his name i think that's right that, that sounds right yeah so he sent it into tooth and nail on our behalf and they called us if i i might have gotten the details a little messed up but that's how i remember it yeah that's it's, awesome. it's been a long time you can't you gotta forgive us man it's... yeah yeah no that's that's all good so they just call you up and they just say, hey, we, we got your album in the mail. We'd like to talk more. Or how does that whole process kind of come to be, especially when you're that young? Yeah, how was that? I think that they said that they wanted to do an EP with us just to kind of see how it went. And, uh, of course, we jumped at it. Uh, we did the EP with Steve Kravak at West Beach. Um, so, yeah, we did four songs. It wasn't a full, like, you know, here's a, here's a record deal. I think we missed a compilation that Tooth & Nail had put a lot of new up uh, bands on and uh, so they did it they were gracious enough to do a, a four song EP with us we did that and then they signed us for a continued contract for other albums after that hmm. does that sound right Jeremiah yeah yeah I think it was um we they kind of went back and forth on the demo and they were they were interested in us but they didn't they didn't they didn't sign bands that they didn't get a chance to see live and um they were just really busy at that time and they didn't have time to come see us and so and I mean, to be honest, we probably didn't have too many good shows anyway. We'd want them to come to. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the happy medium was like, okay, let's just see what you can do. Um, you know, we got two days in a studio and that's not a lot of time. Man. When you talk about like setting up drums and miking and, you know, and, and trying to get bass tone out of like a, a crappy bass and like no amp. And um, I mean, it's a miracle the thing ever saw the light of day. I mean, just the fact that Steve was able to do something with the, the, the equipment that we had and two days to work with. It was, uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Kind of how those, those pieces play together, you know, when there's not, you know, social media and all these other ways of, of getting your band out there, you're just kind of, you know, hoping for the best on a lot of those things. Had you guys sent that demo to other labels or was tooth and nail kind of the dream and that's, I mean, I guess you guys said a friend sent it there, but had you kind of shopped it around a bit or what were you guys I, I don't for? recall that we should. Yeah, I don't recall we shopped it around a whole bunch. I think that um, I think we'd made the first two demo tapes as something we could sell at shows. Um, I think we may have sent one into Tooth and Nail at one point and we sent it to the wrong person. I think we sent it to like Bob Moon, who had produced the, the first couple MXPX records. Right. Not realizing that he wasn't Tooth and Nail staff at the time or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, that was on the first EP or the first demo that we had done. And then after that, yeah, I don't, I don't recall sending it back to tooth and nail. That's where we kind of probably owe that Mark Morrison guy a high five. <laughs> you know where he's still at? I have no idea. No. That's, that's funny. Cause that's not the first time that, that I've heard of, of Ben getting signed by, you know, a buddy sending something in and, 
then they get you know an email or a phone call from this record label and they think it's a prank and you know it just takes a while because they're like well we didn't send this in how would they even know about us right well that's cool any other kind of specific memories around this ep uh we were all just super scared everything on that ep is just so fast because i think we got in the studio and we were so nervous and just adrenalized and pumped up to be doing something in a real studio with a real producer just happy to be there you know yeah how how did steve react to you guys was he like pretty kind of gentle with with a younger band or was he i think yes and yes and no is the right answer to that so like for me just like on a slightly geeky level i rolled into the studio with like two guitars a telecaster and an ibanez and i was really comfortable with the ibanez with the floyd rose and the started playing that and the first thing he did is ask me to remove the Ibanez from the studio. So <laughs> he just wouldn't have so, any of that? No, no, no. And I can see his point. So we ended up tracking out with like this this really cool telecaster I had and we double tracked it. So that's what I did with guitars on the EP. So that was cool. And he had all these great old amps, which were fun to work with and he had all this experience, you know, working with other bands and had all this knowledge. So that was kind of helpful for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually didn't realize that that you guys got in with Steve that early on. I didn't. I didn't think it was until, you know, the further albums down. So that's that's a really cool uh, little tidbit there for for music nerds out there. And it's also, you know, I guess with signing with a label like Tooth and Nail, just one of those kind of perks where you know you probably would never get in with a producer like that as a you know a smaller kind of no name band. And so to to get that opportunity must have been really amazing. Yeah, it was super fun. We were really excited. Yeah, it was awesome. It was, it was like Jackson already said, it was kind of like our trial to get to see how we would do in a studio just with like that amount of time and just kind of see. Um, I think just to get something out so that people could kind of, um, too, they don't see how people are going to respond to what we were putting together, you know? And um, I remember like even before it came out, they were putting it like if you called Tooth and Nail back then. They'd put you, and they put you on hold. You would, you would be listening to music, and you, it would usually be something that was new that was coming out, or maybe wasn't out yet. And they yeah. put our EP on there, and it was like on a rotation. And they, the feedback they got from what they said to us was, was like so good that they were like, "Okay, we don't need to see you live. We'll just, we'll, we're, we're gonna do this, this like full, uh, full fledged deal with you guys." And it turned into like a one plus three deal or something. I think. Well, it was a three plus one actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we got to do Rusty, Burnout, and then another record with an option for a fourth, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't think I've ever heard of a band getting signed off of uh, Hold Music. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, definitely definitely a first, definitely unique. Awesome. Well, let's uh, move on to Rusty. It came out June 24th, 1997, so not even that long after after that EP. So how like when did you guys start writing for Rusty after that initial EP was released? Well, I think um, a lot of the songs for Rusty were already written when we did the EP. 
uh, when we did the EP, Tooth and Nail told us to kind of hold on to some material if we had more stuff. Oh, okay. So that we didn't just put everything on the EP, you know. Um, some of it was actually written or rewritten in the studio. Uh, so Rusty was actually recorded at West Beach, right, Jeremiah? Rusty. And we were stoked. Yeah, it was. Or, I'm sorry, recorded at West Beach. We uh, no, no. Well, part of it was the vocals were done. So what happened was we went up. Um, it was kind of cool. We oh, Razor's play, Edge. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we we, uh, we went to play uh, the, the uh, record release parties for Life in General when it was coming out, and so we played one show at the Rock Candy in Seattle, and then we played I think it was La Luna the next night, or or was it the I can't remember the one in Portland. And then we stayed in Portland that night. And then um, then the next morning we got up and Ryan's dad comes out because they had we'd, we'd ridden in their Suburban and we pulled the trailer. And he asked us, hey, man, have any of you guys been down to uh, to the uh, trailer yet this morning? And we were like, no. And he said, well, I just went down there and the trailer's wide open. Oh, and man. we were supposed to be in the studio that next day in San Francisco and at the Razor's Edge, which is where a lot of a lot of the Fat Records bands had recorded. And so we wake up basically to find out that like, Oh shoot! Jackson's only guitar has been stolen. Oh no! Um, we have like well, now we have to wait around for a police report for like six hours, and it was just it was bad times, man. Like we were all just like freaking out. So now we're like, now what do we do? Like we have two weeks booked in the studio. We just lost the first day already, and uh, we ended up getting there like midnight or something like that. We spent two weeks recording, um, and the producer just um, I don't want to speak ill of the guy, but like. It just wasn't going well, and it took a lot longer. Um, and part of that was probably me, um, because I didn't have a lot of studio experience, and and things didn't go great. And um, I'll just put this out there: Jackson ended up finishing um, the bass tracks. He did like more than half the bass tracks uh, because we were just running out of time, you know. And it was kind of like, look, we need to at least finish the music here. Let's finish the vocals. We'll go back to Hollywood, and we'll go back to Steeper back, and uh, we'll finish vocals there. And so it was kind of a, it was kind of a, to answer the question, I guess, um, we, it was, the music was all done with Razor's Edge in San Francisco and all the vocals were all done at West Beach. Wow. That's uh, yeah, quite the experience to, to kind of start, you know, a cycle for that album. That's, that sucks that that kind of stuff happened. <laughs> well, in Jeremiah's defense though, the bass parts were written by Jeremiah. So I just had to copy him in the studio. <laughs> Well, there you go. I think with I think Thanks, with buddy. Rusty, I think there was um, I think I think we got to spend like about two or three days on guitar. Uh, I think that was all we had for for Rusty, and then we spent like two or three days on bass. But the cool thing is, Steve's really focused on vocals, and that's one of his things. Is he's really good at producing vocals and pulling out hooks or maybe like musical surprises from people, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. hey, can you just try something different in this spot? And, you know, yeah. so then we'd experiment on the fly and then you get this like fresh sort of new idea that would pop into a song. So we kind of did that with Steve. Sorry for getting Razor's Edge and um, West Beach mixed up. But, yeah, that's that was one of those fun adventures, man. And did you guys adapt to that pretty well? Like, was that hard for you to just try something different on the fly or was did that kind of breathe new life into something you'd been, you know, maybe playing a bunch? I, I just I kind of feel like the songs were already there when we did Rusty. Um, you know, so like anything that was maybe on the fly was just kind of a smaller part. If that it makes be, sense. It would be like maybe Ryan singing like in a lower register and see would be like, Hey, why don't we bring it up a little bit and kind of like get a little air underneath it, you know, and kind of, kind of, uh, just pitch wise, just like bring the pitch up. Maybe, um, 
I don't know, a third or a fifth or I don't I don't know these musical terms, but I'm just a bass player, man. Like don't don't expect much from me. Yeah, and I still think like Ryan when we did vocals, he just killed it. But also at the time Ryan was still like I think fifteen, maybe yeah. sixteen when we did Rusty. That blows I think my mind. Just turned 15. Yeah, no, he just he just crushed it too. I mean, because you know, going in the studio with as little experience as we had at the time, you still feel kind of green. You're not as confident. So you're around all these producers that know how other stuff goes. They know how to record. They know how to produce. They know how to get all these good sounds. Um, so we were not only just you know trying to put our songs down, but you know learn from the people that we were around at the time. Right. Yeah. No. Plus, also we're just music fans, you know huge fans of like you know strung out and face to face no effects and mxpx and at the at the same time too when we wrote rusty joe and i and i know jeremiah everybody in the band is is just like big music fans and you know we listen to more than just um like that new school punk rock sound you know we come from different like post-punk backgrounds alternative backgrounds things like that so I think with Rusty, you can actually hear some of that come through. You know, you could probably maybe hear some face-to-face or some of those influences come out on that record. But you can also hear like some super drag influences or some mm. sunny date real estate or some Smashing Pumpkins influences come out on that record. Yeah, that's really cool to hear now because when I got this album, like this was one of the first punk albums I got. So I discovered Rusty at a bookstore I was still kind of listening to rock music and I saw the cover and it caught my eye. And so I put the demo tape in and it seriously changed my life. Like I put that on and I finally knew what it was that I was looking for. I know that sounds really cheesy, but it's like I would listen to rock albums and every time, you know, a slower song, because every rock album would have, you know, a slower song or, you know, 90s alternative band. And I was always like, oh, fast forward, you know, see what the next one's like. And listening to an album that was just fast from beginning to end, similar to MXPX's life in general, it was just like finally music that I've been looking for. I just I didn't know what it was until that album caught my eye. That's, That's awesome, cool, man. man. Thank you. That's and it was uh, for so a funny story with that is it was still a so what I don't know how old they would have been maybe twelve thirteen, so my parents were still kind of like listening to the music that I bought before I could listen to it or whatever. And I remember, so my mom would like sit me down with the lyrics book and what, <laughs> and the line that stood out to her um, was a girl is a wall that no one can climb. <laughs> and she wanted, oh, okay. and she wanted me to explain so, to her what I thought that meant. And I was like, I don't know. Right. Mom. Like, <laughs> so, you know, what's cool. I, I remember listening to that first podcast uh, that I'd heard from you guys where you guys were talking about Rusty and, and Burnout. <clears throat> and that lyric's pretty close. I wrote that song about my wife. who She's still my wife, and I love her. She's amazing. Um, it, it doesn't say a girl is a wall that you can't... It, I think it said something along the lines of up goes a wall that you can't climb. And I think that had more to do with um, just being protective of yourself or maybe just being in a relationship as a female and being protective hmm. of... Of your, you know, so it, it, of course, a girl is not a wall that you can climb or, you know, whatever. But I think the lyrics a little different. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, at the time, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm married to the most beautiful woman ever. Um, we've got four beautiful children. Um, but at the time, I was just dealing with the fact that I'm in this really cool relationship with a, like a, an amazing, amazing woman. 
and just dealing with the fact of like she you know of course she's got her own feelings she's got her own issues with relationships just like i do and that song was more just i don't want to fail this that was sort of like where that song comes from you know if that makes any sense i've never been like really um open about like lyrics and things like that because i don't do that anymore yeah but uh at the time that song was more just talking about falling in love with somebody and not wanting to disappoint them yeah sorry to clarify i'm I'm not mocking the lyric by any means it was just a funny line that that i my mom for some reason that line stood out and she like wanted me to explain what it was i was like i don't know mom just let me listen to my music like (laughs) So yeah, it, it had nothing to do with what the lyric was. It's just found it funny that that was the one that stood out, and for some reason she yeah. wants some explanation. So, but yeah, no, that's that's cool to get some kind of um, behind the behind the scenes of of what that was. So that's awesome. Oh, that's cool. Who came up with the name Rusty? So I think we all talked about it as a band. Um, nobody had an idea what we we're going to call that record, and. Um, from my memory, I think I kind of had a hand in naming it. Yeah. And we were, yeah, we were, um, we were all staying at Razor's Edge. And uh, that's like, like this haunted row house in San Francisco, right up the street from what the Satanic Temple or whatever that is. Oh my God. Anyway, crazy. so we're, we're staying in Rusty. It's like probably the longest any of us have been away from home or away from our families. And we're talking about being so close to the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was like, why is it called the Golden Gate Bridge? It's rust colored. So that's probably where Rusty came from. Oh, that's that's cool. I, I always thought it was a, an interesting album title because, you know, I, I didn't really see anything from the lyrics or, you know, there was no song titled that. Or no, there was a song titled that, right? Right? Yeah. 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 That's actually, I think, the only song, that song Rusty is the only song we literally wrote in the studio before we recorded it for drums or anything. Okay. Actually, that might have been a song that we on the fly just decided to sort of rewrite in the studio. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. As, as, as far as I remember. Yeah. And I, I remember that song being on a, a truth, um, like skateboard and snowboard surfing video. And that song was on one of the surfing videos. And it just, every time it came on, it was my favorite part of that video. So every time oh, I hear rad. that song, I still picture people surfing. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Sure. So how did this album kind of change where the band was going? Did you guys notice, you know, a significant shift with the release of this album? You know, was it your first full length? You were kind of, you know, solidified now on Tooth and Nail as a newer band. But, I mean, this album, you know, is for a first full length from a newer band. Like, this album is un- unbelievable. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it really changed anything as far as, like, our thinking. I think, you know, we were just, at that time, we were still just kind of like, trying to like hang on and figure out where this was going and like and kind of like how uh how this was gonna go like you know for all we knew we were we were gonna do one album and then it would it would be done and that would be it you know what i mean because that happened to so many bands you get lucky maybe you get signed and then like your album doesn't do so well so i think right we all were just kind of like you know let's go out and do our like do our best and then you know hopefully we have another shot but i mean I don't think that we really had like expectations other than we need to work hard and we need to be as good as we can. Hmm. Was there any like shift in tour opportunities or anything, or was it still just kind of slugging away as, as the same as before? Well, if um, I remember correctly, Jeremiah, correct me if I'm wrong. Like 
it seemed like we were in a, a rotation where if you put out an album, I think you did like almost 60 days of touring after that. Cause there was like a, a Davden and tooth and nail sort of contract where Davden would put out tooth and nail bands and book their tours. So it seemed like we were on a rotation of album tour, tour 30 days, of, you know, 30 days each and then new record and then 60 more days of touring. Cause yeah. they just, the bands would go out for like 60 days at a time during the summer and then come back. That's how I remember it. Yeah. Cause Ryan was too young to tour. He was still, he was still in high school and, and you know, his parents, I mean, I, forgive me, I may be wrong here, but I, I just don't think that they wanted him to like homeschool or anything like that. Um, and I could be wrong, but um, I think the fact that he was still just, I mean, he was young in high school too. It wasn't like he was, he was like a freshman, maybe a sophomore. And so we kind of had the tour in the summer. That was the opportunity which kind of ended well because we would end in August or whatever. Like we, I think our last show would sometimes be like Tom Fest or whatever. And then we'd come home and then like, we would spend the next two to three months writing. You know, I, I remember after, after Rusty, we spent two, three months writing uh, burnout. And then uh, I think that's kind of, we were, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of maybe the time Dale Yob joined. Um, yeah. That's where we met Dale. Yeah, because we had toured with uh, 90 Pound Wuss, right? And, right. Um, and he had had um, some kind of a, a, a thing with them, and he was done with that band, and, and uh, he played with us at, at Tom Fest, actually. And then um, I think after that, we were kind of like, man, we've always wanted a second guitar player, and here's a guy that knows our songs. He was, he was a roommate of Chad Pearson, um, who was also the militia group Chad. Um, at the time, though, he was, he was, just, he was mailroom Chad. Like he worked at the Tooth and Nail office, and he was he was he was roommates with Dale, and he kept telling us, "Hey man, this guy like he knows all your songs. Like you should you should really give him a shot if you guys want a second guitar player." And so that tour with um, Ninety Pound Wuss that we did, um, uh, we, we kind of talked about it, and then at, at Tom Fest, it was just like, "All right, let's give it a shot. Like it'll be fun. Let's just see how it goes," you know. And that's kind of a a drastic change in the sound from Ninety Pound Wuss. I mean, they were a punk band, but. Um, I was actually just listening to uh, I can't remember what album it was the song the album with the, the song something must break, but it's you know it's a lot more kind of spazzy. It's not nearly as polished and melodic as as Slick Shoes was. So what was that like for him, kind of coming into the band and maybe adjusting his his style a bit? Well, he was well, he was in the Cooties too though. He was yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. He was he was in fan mail. He was in um, like he was in a he was in a bunch of bands. So it wasn't like did he also do Arthur or was it, is that my mistake? No, I don't think he was an Arthur. Okay, maybe I just didn't. Okay, because really, wouldn't have so for that timeline, because um, that that Cooties album came out. Would that have been similar to the Rusty, Rusty era, ninety six, ninety seven, probably. You know what? It was it was right around the same time. I don't remember what came out first. That was another one that got I think recorded at West Beach with Steve. It right. Was. Yeah. Yeah. But I I kind of feel like if if I'm not all screwed up, that that was after Life in General, right? Uh, well, I think, see, and this is this is where my memory isn't going to serve anything. But what the the story that I've heard since then and more recently was that the Cooties recorded there, and Life in General had been recorded with Bob Moon. They were kind of like, "Wow, like, why don't we get this record to sound more like the Cooties record?" And you know, you're working with some of the same musicians, and so that relationship's already there with the producer. So I think they went back and re-recorded Life in General there because of the Cooties. But I could be wrong. I don't. Yeah, that's that, that sounds familiar. So was was it a given that you guys were going to go back with Steve for burnout or?
I thought with burnout, we had the option of, they talked about West Beach at the time. And I think one of my things was like, well, we know what Steve can do. Let's go back to Steve. I remember having that thought. Am I screwed up on that, Jeremiah? No, that, that sounds, I mean, it just seemed like a, a good natural fit, I think. Because it was like, we, we're familiar with him. We know what he can do. He's putting, he's not putting out bad records. I mean, everything sounds right. Everything so, sounds so was it, I, I was, could we go to blasting room and we decided to go with, um, Steve? I don't Is think that, that, that was, I, I'm not, I don't think that was on the table at the time. I don't, uh, I don't okay. Know. I don't, I don't okay, think cool. we would turn down that, that opportunity, but because there were a lot of the newer tooth and nail punk bands that were going to the blasting room. And so I was curious if, if that was a part of the decision or maybe if that was just going to happen later. I mean, we're talking about like what November 98 and, and maybe, I mean, the deciding factor at that time too could have been the fact that Ryan was in school. I mean, it could have been like, yeah, you could go to the blasting room, but Ryan's going to have to take a month off school. Well, that is an, an option, you know? So maybe, maybe that wasn't an option. I just, I, it's hard to, it's hard to really think back that far for me. Yeah. Well, there was definitely a, a you know, Steve must have, I mean, there's only, you know, a year and a bit in between these albums, but it seemed like, you know, I don't know if whether it was on his end or just you guys were, um, you know, a lot more kind of skilled. Maybe you've been playing more in that. And but the album just, you know, it has a much more kind of polished sound to it. You know, it's it's really full. Not not that rusty wasn't. I guess you add a second guitar player, but at least when I listened to Burnout, I noticed a definite shift kind of in in sound. Yeah, well, again, Rusty was recorded with a different producer at first who did the music, pretty much. And then Steve took over the vocals at the end of that production. With Burnout, um, that was um, Soup to Nuts Steve okay. on that record. Yeah. So on, on Burnout, it's maybe a bit less, you know, kind of shreddy than, than Rusty was. What was kind of the thought behind that guitar playing or, or how were you guys arranging songs and writing songs kind of between well, Rusty and Burnout? At the time, um, that's the first time I'd actually dealt with Steve on guitar solos. So he would say, play like Chuck Berry here. And it was Steve. So I played like Chuck Berry. But um, <laughs> a long story short is um, Steve is a very song driven person. Right. And he's, a, um, a, you know, which is respectable. Um, he's always been, you know, really just forward thinking in like drums, vocals, the important part of the song, and you cut the fat out. Um, when you talk about less shreddy, um, so burnout, there was, there was some spots where I wanted to maybe be in the studio and do some like solo-y type stuff, if that's what you mean, where we kind of, we kind of held that back a little bit, um, which for the song isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but yeah, there was some, some restraint there. The cool thing is skipping ahead to the new record, um, after talking to Steve, we we got to kind of throw a little more guitar on the new record, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I always wonder what that was like because, I mean, there was so much unique guitar work on Rusty. And I just remember that standing out on Burnout, you know, you open the booklet and it's like, okay, they've got two guitar players now. And I think I'd mentioned that when I, when me and David originally went through this album was, I just felt like there was some some points in the songs where it's like, I just wanted that like... I just wanted that classic Jackson guitar, you know, riff or something right here. But, but yeah, I have heard lots that, that Steve does, you know, like to cut the fat and, and kind of keep it more straightforward, which again is, isn't a bad thing, but I guess it just depends what you're, what you're hoping to do. 
Are you talking about right. guitar leads? Or you, I mean, because I mean that Burnout's got riffs all over it, man. Like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Every song, like for better for worse. And yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. There's definitely riffs on it. Maybe just yeah. Maybe solos or I don't know. I mean, right. I, I just felt like there's as nothing. I, sorry. Yep. No, no. Th- there's there's just nothing more self-aggrandizing and selfish than a guitar solo, and that's one of the things that Steve's really good at saying. Right. You know what? You're not the singer. You know, maybe don't play so much right there. But the cool thing is, you know, I'm also a guitar player. So I'm like, you know what, though? I really want to be selfish right now. And I want, you know, I'm, you know, being a lead guitar player, you know, it's you're, you're always fighting the singer. So and I'm kind of speaking tongue in cheek and trying to joke a little bit. But I think Steve's mindset is more like, you know, true, like punk rock ramones bad religion where the, the music is brilliant it's it does not not lack any technicality in any way but you know i don't think that steve's favorite thing is a rad guitar solo yeah yeah and i guess that's just part of the you know trying to to take the songs you've brought in and having an outside ear kind of hear things and yeah i i don't mean any you know slight to that i absolutely love burnout I just, you know, a lot of those earlier punk, tooth and nail punk bands, you know, think of, you know, Value Pack, um, Sidewalk Slam, like they were all pretty kind of simple guitar stuff. And so I always loved that about Slick Shoes is, you know, it was just, it was so much more to it. And so maybe there was just at points where I just kind of hoped for more, but that's, that's not a slight to the songs or the songwriting, but maybe just my ear or what I expected to happen or something. Oh, Totally. So when what kind of inspired these songs? So again, like there wasn't a a ton of time in between Rusty and this, um, were 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 songs and guitar riffs and stuff coming pretty easily to you guys? I mean, we we did a lot of writing together. I think we did some writing on tour even because we kind of knew we were going to be going into the studio and we kind of had, you know, I mean, when you're on tour, you have a lot of time where you're just like sitting around a hotel room and and or or just sitting in a van or whatever. And um, if you're not if you're not um, sound checking or playing or loading in or loading out. Like you just have so much time on your hands that I think that we did most of the writing on the, am, am I right, Jackson? I'm trying to like, yeah, together. I think you're right on, on burnout. We were writing a lot on tour, but also as soon as we got back home, we were practicing a lot and we'd get together and just sort of, um, kind of rock out, you know, sometimes Joe and I would get to the, the practice space, you know, and just start jamming. Um, and come up with riffs and Jeremiah and Ryan would get there. I mean, you know, not necessarily in that order, but we just start, you know, creating together. And I think that's how burnout kind of came together. I think also with burnout, you know, we were all new to touring and making records. And I think with burnout, we got a little less scared of fitting certain formulas. So where maybe guitar solos or certain riffs might've been missing, there was a certain, um, sort of a darker edge that got to come out with burnout that you might not have seen on rusty yeah, or was, the EP for that matter. I was intrigued to what kind of kind of brought that out. I love, I love that part about burnout, just kind of a bit more moody and darker. And... Right. And I think there was a certain element of us that was just like, okay, we've toured a few times and you know, we're young and brooding and a little pissed off about nothing in particular. And you know, that was that. What, uh, what inspired the title for that album? <laughs> yeah i don't know maybe we were burnt out from the 60 days of, of touring i don't know <laughs> honestly i don't i don't remember what inspired that to be completely honest jeremiah do you remember 
I don't really know. All I know is we were talking like album cover, and we just we were just like, Rusty was was really it was really difficult. I mean, there's there's a lot of detail, and there's a lot of stuff, and there's a lot to go wrong when you do that. I mean, you know, all the little things you start, you know, with a simple thing, and then it's just like, okay, you're putting um, this image here and this image here, and and it, we were like, hey, no, 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 you can't do that because it looks weird or or whatever. And I remember we were talking about burnout specifically. We were like, okay. We just want to like, let's just do like a black record with like maybe some like blue flames or something coming up from it or something like that. And then we'll just, you know, and I think that the name kind of came after the concept of the art first. So I think that's how we, I think it's how we landed on it. It was just kind of like, you know, what do you, what do you call it? It's got flames on it. Okay. Burnouts kind of fit. And I don't think, I don't think anything in particular that was like, you know, you're going to look at and be like, oh, okay, that's obvious. Yeah, I don't think it was super overthought. Yeah. What, what do you guys think of the artwork looking back on it? Um, it's I very mean, 90s. <laughs> I don't hate it. I mean, um, I, I it's very, very simple. And I think that there's there's a lot of beauty in simple. Um, and again, like there's less to go wrong with it. Yeah, that's true. Well, I remember buying a, a beanie from, I don't know, some some store around that time that pretty much had those same kind of flames going up it. And then I believe I had a Slick Shoes patch that I sewed onto it. And I was just so stoked because I was like, man, I'm the only one that has this awesome burnout-looking beanie. <laughs> That's <laughs> rad. Yeah, so moving on to uh, to Wake Up Screaming. So this came out May 23rd, 2000. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. So Jackson, you had exited the band by this point, or what? What kind of happened between these two albums? Yeah, um, I don't. Um, for the most part, I think we had written probably six or seven songs for that record, and then yeah, I, I exited. So I will defer to Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did we did a, a good fair amount of writing with Jackson, and um, I mean, I, I would say probably half the record. I mean, if not if not maybe more even. Um, and I mean, and then there was like a couple ideas that we had written together that maybe we like spun off and, and tried to like finish or, you know, um, or whatever that kind of became part of that record still too. Um, and, uh, we were, uh, playing lo shows locally. We had, I think we had Andrew from, uh, Sick of Change play guitar, even a couple shows. Oh yeah. Couldn't make it to. And, uh, uh, yeah, what's his, what's his last name? Tremblay. Andrew Tremblay. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and in the process we, uh, I think Greg approached Joe and just kind of said, Hey man, I can play your songs. I'd like to try out. And 
we hung out with him for a little bit and like it was cool and then um he came out and you know we we did a couple runs through the songs and it was just like you know what i mean he, he he's good he plays the songs like we get along with him well and that honestly like in, when you're in a touring band the chemistry between the members is probably paramount so like even um even if you think like oh we could probably get somebody maybe technically better maybe um just he was just so cool it was just like all right man like he's he's one of the he's one of the team you know and so um shortly after that i think um dale again was like had had re had talked to somebody probably joe and then um he joined and helped us finish writing the record and then i'm trying to think um it definitely came up that we were going to be able to record at the blasting room with uh, Stefan and uh, Bill and Bill. And um, so we all just agreed to do that. And that was uh, a phenomenal experience, man. We, we drove out to Fort Collins and uh, we slept in the studio there and it was this insane. I don't know if you've seen the blasting room, dude, but it's like you walk in and there's kind of like a green room to the left and there's a long hallway and they've got, I mean, in this, in this, building they've got the studio where they have like the big room for the drums they've got little smaller rooms for, for the amps and things like that but then the descendants actually have their whole like all of their t-shirts all their merchandise printing and oh, mail wow. happened out of this building and they had like a kitchen and they had actually a, a two or three practice rooms in there if i remember and local bands that they were friends with would just come in and they would just like rent space or, or i don't know if they let them use it for free or whatever but these bands would just come through and all came in and all was practice there while we were there. And it was like this, it was just like this religious experience where we were just like, I get to sit in like and watch all practice. And, and those guys are gifted musicians. And, you're just, and, and we were just like, you know, you're in the presence of greatness, you know. I mean, more than the recording, like I remember those, those things. Um, but uh, also there was, there was uh, I think, Stephanie passed a kidney stone that week. And um, I don't know if I should mention this, but but still some <laughs> problem that he wrote a song about that ended up on a record later. So oh, I'll just that's awesome. that. <laughs> yeah, those those are such cool stories. You know, like you you go to this place and knowing that you know the producers, you know, are obviously and you know very prominent bands, but you probably don't think that band's going to be practicing there while we're there and. You know, to them, they're probably just, well, this is our jam space. So we're going to jam regardless of if there's, you know, a band in the studio recording or whatever. Right. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. We showed up at, and it was dark outside and Bill came out and he greeted us and he took us in. We actually stayed at his house the first night. And in the morning, uh, we woke up and he cooked us breakfast and he was like, he was hyping up this video. And he's like, hey, man, you know, before we get started, I just want to, like, give you guys inspiration and all this stuff. And we're thinking, oh, shit, this is going to be like some old Descendants record or, or just, you know, some kind of special performance. And he puts this thing on and it's this bluegrass, man. It's like four dudes with basically acoustic instruments standing, standing around one mic and they all shred. And it was just this, we were just kind of like, you know, your jaw hits the floor. And just, he's like, that's kind of what I'm hoping for with this record. It's just like, okay. You know, like <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Like, hopefully, we can do do something. You know, not that sounds like that, but hopefully, we can maybe emulate some of that skill. You know, that you see in that. So that was a. I just thought that was an interesting thing. You know, that's the last thing you expect from this old punk band. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's and crazy. Jackson, do you want to speak to why you why you left the band at that point? Oh no, that's not necessary. Just just that um, I was just starting a family and had just gotten married, and um, 
you know, there was, there was nothing like bad about it. It was just, you know, yeah. between me and the guys and it was just, it was time for me to do something different. Yeah, for sure. So what did, what did you think kind of, did you still, you know, follow the band, what they were releasing? Did you have thoughts on kind of how albums turned out that you weren't on? Oh yeah, absolutely. I thought Greg did a great job. I thought wake, wake up screaming was really fun to listen to. Um, you know, just being myself and being sort of, um, I'm kind of like, I don't know, OCD about certain things. There were certain like riff timing things where I was like, Oh, that's, I I want the timing should have been a little different there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's, that's just like stupid stuff. You know, I thought they did a great job and I was really proud to be a part of, you know, the band and, and see them go forward. Yeah. How did, uh, Jeremiah, how did you feel the fans kind of received this album? You know, maybe it was a bit more melodic, more mid-tempo than, you know, Rusty and Burnout. How did, were, was there, you know, any, any flack for that or did things kind of progress, you know, no, in, in a positive mean, way? Yeah. I, I, I don't remember getting, getting a lot of negative. Feedback. I mean, I'm an optimist by, by, by nature though. So, I mean, I mean, if people were saying bad things, I don't remember, I really don't remember, remember that stuff. And I don't really, I don't really think about it too much if I do hear it. And honestly, like, I just kind of felt like, um, it's hard, it's hard to kind of put it in a vacuum because at the same time, like we're doing better tours, you know what I mean? We're, we're opening for MXPX and Good Charlotte and, and the record, that record was taking off and that was, that was, um, you know, Angel was on that record and, and yeah. that kind of really like pushed us to the next, which by the way was written by Jackson and I and Joe and Brian. Like, awesome. so that, that song, um, you know, um, was, had a lot of success and it was, um, I, I think that, uh, I didn't notice any slowdown. I don't think anybody was like disappointed that maybe we weren't as fast. Maybe we slowed down a little bit, maybe a little more melodic. And I think, I mean, you even kind of fall into like, what do we need to do to get to the next level? And I think there could have been some of that thinking in there. Cause we, we had a manager at that point that started like trying to steer us a little bit and, and okay, you know, but if you, but if you write this a little more, uh, maybe radio friendly or whatever, like potentially like maybe this will help you guys. And it's, um, I don't think we ever really full, fell into that, but we, but you kind of, it affects your thinking, you know? And so when a producer says, Hey, slow this down a little bit, you don't go, you don't push against it as much. You just kind of go, okay, well, you know, I mean, this, who am I to argue with Bill Stevenson, you know? So. Right. And maybe that's the difference from a listener versus, you know, the actual mu- musician, right? Cause a listener can be easily judgmental and be like, Oh, why isn't this faster? Whereas the musicians yeah. thinking we've done fast for the last five years, you know, maybe we want to do something different or, there's these other opportunities or, you know, especially around this time, you know, the more melodic pop punk was really blowing up, you know, with drive through records and, you know, still yeah. lots of the tooth and nail bands and stuff. And so it's, um, yeah, like I, I know uh, for me, you know, I, I didn't love this one as much, but I appreciate that, that input into it because it makes me realize, you know, if I want a fast record, I can just go back and listen to the other ones rather than the musicians well. wanting to do something different. There, and there, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I mean, we did we did want to do something different. I mean, if you listen to, I mean, let's take Newfound Glory, man. Like, you know, they 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 had a lot of success with like Sticks and Stones and their self titled album. And I've I've heard people say things to them like, Hey, why don't you guys, you know, why isn't why why isn't this more like that album? And they're like, You don't want another one of those records. You already have that. Record. So why do we want to why do we want to do that? And at the same time, I think that there's also a bit of like almost trying to find an identity because like we had just lost Jackson, who was who was basically like the primary songwriter for the first two records. And so like as much as I could 
and as much you know i don't know i don't know about greg and i can't really speak for the other guys but like as much as i could when i'm writing a song i'm thinking like i'm trying to think what would jackson do here and it's like yeah but but you're not him and i i can't write those riffs like i'm not Mm. he's way more creative than i am and he's got a lot more musical vocabulary than i do you know so um some of that was just like like i said some of the pressure maybe we felt but also there's a limit to um maybe your abilities too you know yeah that's fair no well thanks for sharing that i i I love that kind of input because it just helps me realize that you know musicians aren't just making it for one type of person right they're making it for themselves they're making it for growth they're making it for all these other reasons not just for the for the music snob so appreciate that uh that info on that did you notice um so you know this was your third full length on tooth and nail were you noticing kind of a a drastic shift in sales at this point or how were things kind of going on that front you know i don't really know what the numbers are like i know we we talked about trying to get those numbers um i think that i think what screaming did um really well i don't know if it did as well as burnout or not um i imagine that it did because we did we probably did better because we were doing like i said we're doing bigger tours um we were doing a little more headlining we were we had a bigger draw i mean it is it's like the snow you just build the snowball and i think the the further you go um the easier that things move you know and and so i can't really speak to like what the numbers were at the time or you know um but i know we weren't really worried about it like we just kind of um we were able to get on the tours we wanted to um i mean we never we never like bought a bus or anything like that we were always doing the the van tours at that time at least um so i mean it wasn't like we were getting rich or anything like we may be able to, to afford a, a cell phone now you know nice. yeah so was, <laughs> nobody was buying houses or anything like that we were just you know still eating on 10 bucks a day and you know doing the best with what we had and, and uh, we actually sent we were able to send some money home on some tours you know that that always felt good and then you know we found out somebody else spent it but that's a different story yeah yeah, so this was the the album that I first saw you guys live. So you came and you played a, a like a youth event in uh, this little town just outside of Winnipeg. So that, oh, that was rad! I loved Winnipeg, dude. That was I, I think I remember the show actually. Yeah, so that like that would have been in the winter, and you probably had to you know drive down a highway. Well, I guess you probably flew into Winnipeg, or did you? No, I. Think- I think we were on tour. I don't think I don't think we flew in. I'm pretty sure we were driving that. Okay. Wow. What did you guys Maybe think? Not. What did you guys think of that coming up there to the freezing cold? Oh, you know what? I remember people saying like, "Oh man!" I was like, "How? How do you have cold is it? Oh, it's only 20 below. It's not that cold." <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's man, true. That's dude. kind of an, an average winter day. It gets it gets twice as cold as that uh, for a lot of the winter right. here. So yeah, they said it's not it's not 40 below yet. So we're so we're good. You can just wear a coat. You'll be fine. Just put on a toque. Yeah, there you What's go. What's a toque? <laughs> yeah, more more things to uh, to adjust to. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that totally blew my mind. That uh, you know, a band like you guys would come up. You know, I was from a small town in that province. You know, a small town of ten thousand people. So we never got, you know, any bands coming through there. And so you know, I would often go to a city like Winnipeg, three and a half hours away to see shows. And you know, it just I couldn't even fathom that a band like like you guys would be coming up. So that was, that was so cool. And I, yeah, like I, I think I'd sent you guys some pictures. we got some pictures after and, you know, kind of got to hang out after, you know, just in the, the open area or whatever. And yeah, that was, that was awesome. Really good memories. That's funny. You know, you keep like, 
we never looked at ourselves as, as like being very big or anything like that. Like we, we just, I think we always just loved playing. And, and as long as like, we never really were about really the money or any of that, like that would have been nice. I mean, I wouldn't complain if it happened, but I think we just really enjoyed doing it. And if um, we, we were able to get um, expenses covered and then maybe some more on top of that, like, it, it, we didn't have to get rich doing it, you know? So um, I remember we did a show in, in Alaska with Five Iron Frenzy where they just flew us out for like five days and they just treated us like great. You know, they, they took us, we played like two different shows and um, probably around the same time. And, and they just put us up in a hotel and they would feed us breakfast every day. And it seemed like everybody worked like somewhere else. It was like entertainment, you know, like one person worked at like the movie theater and then another person had a connection at the, uh, at the uh, like inner tube um, ski lift thing where they would like drag you up the hill and you just go right, get to right. Yeah. And somebody's dad was like a helicopter pilot and they flew us over the glaciers. You know? Oh wow. And we didn't have to pay for any of this stuff. Like this was just like, like people treating us well. And, and so I think we were always just kind of grateful for those, those moments and just for the chances to fly out, you know, and, and see maybe, maybe we did fly out to Winnipeg. I don't, I don't really remember, but um, you know, for us, it was it was more the experience and just maybe and and you know maybe the exposure. You just kind of feel like you know as long as we keep doing this, then uh, the more cool things we get to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the biggest differences, you know, back then without having social media, you know, there was so much more space between a fan and a band. You know, so for a kid like me, I would see you know your albums in stores, ads in magazines. You're on tooth and nail, so I just assume you guys are doing super well, you know, super popular, and so it's always funny, kind of hearing like, "Oh yeah, we were just kind of a, a whatever band," you know, still, you know, still having to, you know, work your butt off to, you know, to make ends meet, and so it's just su- such a difference in shift from, you know, from then to now, where everything <laughs> is, you know, out in the open on social media for fans to see, and which is really cool to have that interaction, but I kind of miss that, you know it's like, oh man, like Slick Shoes is here. Like, you know, these are like, this is the biggest punk band ever to us. It was right. <laughs> Where to you guys, you're just like, oh, you know, kind of another, another opportunity to play somewhere kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move on. Let's, let's quickly, uh, touch on the, uh, the split that you guys did with, uh, Cooter slash autopilot off. How did you guys connect with that band and what brought about, you know, releasing music together? You know, we toured with those guys two summers in a row. I think it was 99 and 2000. And they were just the greatest group of guys. Like if, if we, if you had a best friend, you know, like that you would hang out with or whatever, like as a band, like the, those guys were just like, they were, they were so energetic. They were so positive. They're so fun. And they're a great band and they're from New York. 
and um, you know Chris Hughes and Chris Johnson and um, God Phil and and Rod man those guys were uh, they were just they were just fun to hang out with and they're fun to play with and I think just on tour we just started talking about hey maybe we can do a split EP and then they talked about Fueled by Ramen we're like yeah I mean if Tooth and Nail's cool with that then and they were you know and um, let's do it and I think uh, trying to remember I think we recorded the Casbah or something like that and I think. <laughs> I can't remember for sure. And we, we recorded with uh, John Mauer, who's, who's like a bass player for Social Distortion at the time. Oh, right on. And um, I think was, we spent a couple days. It was like, uh, if I remember, it was like St. Patrick's Day or something like that. And uh, it was, I mean, it was a good experience. I mean, maybe not the best. Um, I don't know if the songs were the best. I don't know how it, how it, how it's how people really feel about it. I mean, um, but it was it was a fun experience. We got to do something cool and, and um, do the split with, with Cooter and, you know, just kind of have that. Uh, memory, you know, just kind of, I don't know. I mean, the songs, um, a couple of them were written by me. I think one of them, one or two of them was written by me and one was probably written by Greg or all of us together. Uh, and then there was like, I, I think there was like a funky, like, I don't know. It was like a full synth, synth song. Like it was like, Oh, I don't remember just, that. I don't know. Do you remember, do you remember what I'm talking about? Like it, it, there was, you got that in there. I think, uh, uh, Sean Caphart or, a friend of ours who did um he did our merch on tour and stuff like that like he was on it i think jordan was on it jackson's brother i think his voice is on there too um there's just a funky weird just like why did we do this song but um <laughs> i don't know you guys remember that i i don't remember i don't remember that song let's move on yeah <laughs> yeah let's forget i said anything in fact edit all that out like let's not even let's not even talk about it. Oh. It's I and I can't even find it online. I don't think that one's on streaming services. Oh, thank God! So. <laughs> All right, then let's move on to to Slick Shoes. Came out April 9th, two thousand two. from uh, something I found online. It says, The foursome talk highly of producer Neil King, who helped breathe life into the album. King wasn't the producer who began with the band on this record. The results from his work with them left Slick Shoes unsatisfied. It wasn't about recording fast or slow. It was about what's comfortable, stated Joe. Nixon went on to explain that Neil was a better match once his schedule was free and he could work with the guys. When listening to the album, this is obvious. Slick Shoes have redefined themselves in their self-titled album. 
For fans, it'll just be the polishing they've been looking for, and for those who just didn't think Slick Shoes had much left to offer, will stand corrected after listening to this album. What do you guys think about that? Were you were you hoping to you know again go with a different producer? Or what's what's the kind of story with Neil on that? Oh man, um, I mean this this would be a bit of question for like Joe probably. Um, you know I I was very much um, you know just kind of like I was working at the time at this one place and I didn't have a lot of time to work at the time. I was hoping we would do it a bit closer and and I think um, Brandon had was hoping that Neil King would do it. I think he had done maybe the Undecided. Yeah, he did, he did some something already with with one of the seasonal bands so they were really hot, big on him doing it for us and uh, i didn't honestly didn't, didn't know much about him and but at this point when we got to the point of recording this album um as much of writing and stuff that i did on the record like by the time i came to recording i was kind of like on my way out you know just because um at by that point i had a six-month-old baby i was married i was living in this crappy apartment and just trying to make ends meet and the idea of like leaving um, for me, and this is just this is just for me, man. Uh, for leaving the the country for a month to record an album at that point just kind of seemed like you know I'm gonna put myself in harm's way for what you know. So um, they uh, Brandon graciously flew me out for a weekend, and I tracked all the bass from like a Friday evening, and I think I left at like noon on a Sunday. Hmm. And then when it was all like that was that was as much of time that I had in the studio on that one. And um, it was just one weekend. And then when, when Joe got back, like I went to his house and he played um, he played alone for me with all this, you know, the synthesizer and everything on it. Like, and I was like, man, that's that's uh, that's a cool song. And I think it came out really well. It's, it's, you know, we did we did something beautiful. But like it was kind of like this is this is maybe the end of the road for me, at least, you know, for now, because um, it was just too difficult. Like financially, the band couldn't sustain me, you know, so yeah. uh, it, was, it was time for me to move on. Yeah, as far as production, though, I mean, and that that being said, I was I was always really disappointed with the bass tone, and um, I'm a big I'm a big bass tone guy, and I I really kind of take pride. Um, I thought Burnout had a great bass tone. I think Rusty had a great bass tone. Very different stuff. But when it came to this record, like uh, they said, oh, they got the 65p bass you could play, and I was so stoked. But I didn't have time to change the strings even once because it was oh, just no. like, no, we need to we need to start we need to start tracking, and it was just like. It is what it is, you know. Like we have to, we just have to move forward. Yeah. Show, show must go on. So, was that... if I could chime in, though, the black. Go ahead. No, just you're... to chime in, the yeah, the black album had a couple of my favorite Slick Shoe songs on it. Um, my ignorance and I knew, I think, are totally rad, well written songs, melodic, and just fun to listen to. Yeah, that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, there was. So... I I loved this album. I remember. You guys were building a new website or something. And you had these like stick figures, you know, concert or something on this website coming soon. And it had a clip from one of the songs on there. And I remember going to that website daily, just listening to that clip. And it was probably like, it felt like six months until, you know, there was anything else released or the website was up. But man, that little clip of that song kept me going. So that was, that was awesome. <laughs> So by by now, Jackson, you'd been like pretty removed from the band, you know. Like I'm assuming you didn't have any any writing on this one. What were your thoughts, you know, on this album overall? <clears throat> besides, you know, those few songs that you liked. Oh, I I thought it was really cool. Except the only thing I will say is that song 151 at the end was written, I think, before Ryan was in the band. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was I a re-record, so. right? 
Yeah, yeah. So that one was like pre our EP, and I think 151, the original version, was on our one of our first demo tapes. Did I sing on 151, Jeremiah, or was that Ryan? Man, I think I think it was probably you. I'm not, I don't. Yeah. I don't really remember? If it was on our first, if it was on our first demo, then it was definitely you. It was only- yeah, I, I can't remember back that far. That's I think with that album, that's the only song where we wrote that together as a four piece. Um, but I really enjoyed listening to the record from an outside, you know, standpoint where I, I had very little to do with it at, at all. <clears throat> and again, just so you guys know, like everybody knows, um, Joe, the drummer is my brother-in-law and Ryan's my brother-in-law and Jeremiah has just been one of my longest lifelong friends. So we're like all family. So when you hear like one of these slick shoes records, you get a bunch of like family bros just made a record together so yeah that's right i remember reading that i think it was in the first interview with you guys in hm magazine um it must have been when rusty came out that you know there was those intermingled family kind of stuff in there was that just because you guys were all from the same area and or it's what a small you, town, man. you mean, guys were on like an amish community <laughs> yeah but i think it was more that we kind of all traveled in the same musical circles so um i i met joe when i was 16 um i met my wife um actually because i had heard her singing and um we myself and a friend of mine went to the vineyard church to hear um, my wife sing and um luckily i we actually got to start a band together and eventually meet and get married and you know, I met Ryan when we were doing the, the slick shoes thing and uh, it just, it all kind of came together, you know, from different bands that we were in, like Joe and I were in a different band together, etc. So it sort of just like evolved into like this group of people that we all knew going forward, we doing music together. And it was really cool. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. So Jeremiah, was the extent for you with this album, you just went to record and then you were done with the band or did you do any shows or anything else? Uh, no, that was that was it. Like after after this, it was just kind of like, uh, you know, we just decided to part ways because it was it was I think it was I think they could see it on me. And I think that like I knew that I can't I just kind of had to stop at that point just just to do the, the responsible thing, you know, just to be, you know, go to work and, you know, just to just to try to make ends meet and do what we had to do. And and they were going to continue touring. And I just couldn't I don't I think at that point I just couldn't do it anymore, you know. So was that hard to give that up or were you kind of done with it by then? You know, to me that would, you know, you go to the studio, so you're hearing the songs and, you know, it's kind of when you're getting really excited for what's kind of coming after the record's out, it seems like it would be a tough time to, to, to leave the band. I mean, it was, it was bittersweet. I mean, there's, you you kind of like, um, this is a a certain percent of your identity, you know, kind of like without this, what am I, you know? Um, And I think there's a certain amount of, um, yeah, like I'd hate to, see, you know, they're going on tour and I'm not going to be with them. And, and um, but at the same time, like you got to kind of do um, what's right for you, you know, at that time. Yeah. And I think, you know, nobody, nobody leaves a band because everything's going swimmingly and everything's great and everything and everybody, you know, I mean, it's, it's there, be, there, you get to be stressed out and, and you kind of, um, you got to reassess your priorities, you know, and, and you just got to kind of know when, where your exit is and you got to, you got to be willing to, to pull that trigger and, and go. And, um, you know, at the time it wasn't fun and it wasn't something that like I was happy about, but at the same time, looking back, I think, you know, it's easy now to see it was essential. And, um, you know, here we are 
you know, this must be 18 years later or something now that we're talking and we have it all. Like, you know, now I've got a family and I've got, I've got a great job and we still get to do these like cool shows and we still get to write together and we still get to hang out, you know, as best friends. And it's like, if, if we had tried to, if I tried to force it, like who knows what kind of spiral path I could have ended up down and who knows what happens, you know, you just get, you can get so bitter about things, you know? And, um, I think that just leaving, um, making peace with it and then just, you know, letting everything move forward, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what I did with it, you know? And mm. I think everybody has, has their own time when they have to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess every, every good thing has to come to an end. Right. And you know, you're moving on to something else good, right? You're starting a family and you know, getting to enjoy being at home more. So it's, you know, you, you were giving up something, but you were also gaining something as well. So I think that, you know, makes it a lot easier instead of just, you know, getting kicked out of a band you wanted to keep being in and you're, you know, feeling kind of screwed or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah so the next I mean the next album Far From Nowhere guys were on this one um you know there was a lot of changes with this one you know there's more members they changed labels you know there was a bit more time between the last album and this one um did you guys by this point were you you know so completely kind of out that you just didn't really pay much attention to it or because you were you know you're still connected through you know being married to each other's siblings or whatever that you were still a part of it enough to you know kind of be there or what are your thoughts on this album I thought it was a great album. I think uh, everybody in the band just killed it. There was so much great guitar playing on that record. The vocals, the drums were amazing. Uh, just good songs. I'm, I, I was just a fan of that record personally. Yeah, no, I, I gotta agree. Like it, was, it certainly didn't hurt. It certainly didn't hurt the Slickshoes brand when when that came out. I think everybody was kind of like, in in and in a lot of senses, I think it kind of revitalized. Um, getting back to some of the faster melodic stuff, especially after that self-titled album. And I heard you guys, you know, the first podcast we listened to you guys when you guys were doing the review and everything. And I, I kind of like, I, I know that I know that it like bummed you out when I was, you know, when, when I said something. Um, I think I replied to you or something like that. But like when when Jackson and I, we were actually in the same car or in the same work truck uh, coming back from a job that we were doing, and we were listening to it at the same time. And like when you guys are saying, you know, this is probably my, like my least favorite rap, 
record, I was like, you know what? I don't disagree with it. I mean, I, I, there are some songs I think that are really, really good on uh, as far as the self-titled. Not, and then when I think that getting back to Far From Nowhere, like it, they kind of brought back uh, what we what we were missing for, you know, maybe an album and a half, you know? Mm. And so it was, it was, it was cool to hear that. And I mean, even, even when we started playing shows and it was kind of like, okay, I've got to learn these bass parts. Like there's a lot of really good stuff on there, you know? And, and it's, it's impressive and it, it challenged me and it was kind of like, okay, now I'm, now I'm forced to kind of up the, or, you know, at least like meet the ante, you know? And um, yeah, good, good album. Very, very melodic. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and that's because you guys are back together now. That's that's interesting. You mentioned you're know, you're learning some of these songs that you had no part in. You know, I'm sure at that point you never, you know, probably never thought that was going to be something. So you just kind of left it as is, and now you're going back trying to learn someone else's parts. But yeah, that was that was a really cool album, and I almost wish there would have been you know another one after that just to kind of see where it would have went. Um, you know, they were back with a different producer again this time, and you know, different musicians and. Um, so maybe I'll have to talk with one of the other guys about that of, you know, kind of how that was for them adjusting to that after being with the same guys for a while. And, but, uh, yeah, a really cool album. And do you know why they went with uh, side one dummy? Like the tooth and nail contract was just up and so they wanted to do something different. Um, I, I think toward the end of the uh, tooth and nail contract, I know we, we tried to get, we tried to get out of it at one point. And we were trying to do like the best of thing and maybe just have that count as an album. And, and it just never really, we, we had a lot of bad advice we got from a, a, a tour, a manager that we had. And um, he was just, he was kind of a dishonest person and he kind of encouraged us to, to you know, make bad decisions, you know? That's too bad. And uh, so we, we, we completed that contract. And I think maybe, I think I, I potentially, you know, just to get back to it, I, I think maybe some of the stuff on the self-titled album was kind of half-hearted because it was, we weren't we, we didn't really we weren't into it you know it was kind of like we were we were kind of bummed out maybe at the time and um i i don't know like i think i think that um once that deal with the tooth nail was done it was kind of easy to move on and i don't know why they went with side one dummy like you'd have to ask joe or ryan probably um but uh i mean it was it was a good it's a good record and they i think that they sold well and they did really well they had a lot of success for sure yeah do you know what your your best selling album overall is, Jackson? You have any idea? I have no idea. I have no idea. Man, I'm always I'm always so curious to hear these numbers. But and I know back then, you know, <laughs> SoundScan wasn't really as prominent, and so a lot of these, you know, older Tooth and Nail punk bands that that I talk to, they you know, they have no idea about the numbers, and it's like, man, I'm, I'm just I, not not that it really matters. I'm just curious. You know, is it ten thousand? Is it fifty thousand? You know, like I said, I just assumed all these bands were just, you know, selling like crazy. So, well, I know Burnout was more than 10,000 because I think we sold them as double that the first week it was out. But after that, I stopped, you know, hearing any input. Hmm. So album sales didn't kind of play a part into, you know, getting on bigger tours or was it just Tooth & Nail said, yeah, this album is selling more. So we're going to put you on this tour. Well, I don't know that it was always Tooth & Nail that was putting us on tours. Because I think there was separate management. Am I right about the Jeremiah? Um, I to a certain extent. I mean, we did, um, we were we were with Avon, which was kind of affiliated with Tooth and Nail, it's a different company, but some of the same people. And then we, when we started working with Chad uh, with the Militia Group, then he started booking us on different uh, on our own headlining tours. And and you know, one company might might have like booked us on um, three or four festivals, and then they build a tour around it. You know, where you're getting 
It's like, there's no guarantee. What do you mean there's no guarantee? Well, you're going to get 80% of the door. It's like, okay, so the promoter who doesn't really care if the show happens or not doesn't have to come out of pocket guarantee for anything, you know? So we, we, we did a thing where we drove like 12 hours to a place called the Happy Church in Texas and played for like eight <laughs> people and made like six bucks, you know? So oh, that's brutal. Um, and, and then you go from that to like, okay, now we're working with a guy who really cares. He, he's invested. Chad Pearson was a great, he really cared about the bands and he put a lot in. And when he was booking tours, he made sure, look, at least make sure they get, you know, 400 bucks or something. And I know it's, it's funny to talk. I don't know what the numbers actually were. I don't know what we were getting headlining, but it seems like it was probably in that, in that range for some, um, some of the shows were probably a thousand bucks. I mean, but it wasn't like when I say we weren't getting rich, like our merch was kind of paying for hotels and gas sometimes, you know? So, um, it was, it was a nice change, you know, to get, to get to somebody who actually cared and then wanted to get us on, on, on tour with bands that we'd actually like, you know, that, that stuff too. Mm. Not that we didn't like who we were touring with on tooth and nail, but it was like, um, you're lining you up with bands that maybe, uh, fit your genre a little bit more. Closely. Right. Yeah. And there's so much that plays into that, you know, into touring from the label and the management and the booking agent. And, you know, I'm sure that comes with lots of frustration, you know, wanting to grow and wanting to get on certain tours, but you're kind of waiting on somebody else to make it happen. And, yeah, it's, it definitely can become a mess at times. For the uh, the biggest and the best, did you guys have any input on, on which songs went into that, or was that just kind of Tooth & Nail's way of kind of just putting on another release? Um, I mean, Slick Shoes put another two or three new songs on there, so I, I wasn't part of it at the time, but I think there was some agreement there for sure. I don't know. And as far as selecting the songs, I mean, I imagine that Tooth & Nail probably, I don't know. Is the answer basically, but but I, I I imagine they probably said, "Look, this is what we're thinking. What do you guys think?" You know. Yeah. Did and you kind of put it back on the man? And if, if nobody objects, then it's like, okay, well then that's going to be what it's going to be. I always thought, you know, growing up, the only bands that really had best of CDs were like Bon Jovi and all these, you know, super mainstream bands. <laughs> and so I always, there was always a part of me that was like. I mean, I always liked the whole album, you know, I think best of CDs for those big mainstream bands is because so many of them, you know, they had these big hit songs and then maybe a bunch of others people didn't like. But for punk bands, you know, myself as a fan, I love the whole album. I didn't, you know, just buy your CD to listen to Angel or whatever the singles were, right? And so I I always kind of felt annoyed at like, you know, is this just like a cash grab? Just put a bunch of random songs on that, you know, are supposedly the biggest hits and... You know, is Slick Shoes going to have 18 hit songs? Probably not. <laughs> you know, they've got tons of good songs, but I just always kind of, you know, felt like it was kind of a lame thing to do. Thanks. But so yeah, I I don't mean that, you know, as a slight. I'm not saying you don't have lots of good songs, but I just always found it a, a kind of a funny thing. But anyways. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. So, do, on those releases, like, do you guys get anything from those, or is that more just to finish the contract so a band can move on, and you know, or do you guys actually see anything from those kind of releases? You know, the biggest and the best. Uh, we, by the time they did that, we would, we had fulfilled our agreement uh, for the contract, and so I don't know what the what the reason was behind it. So I imagine there was some kind of a, you know, maybe potentially like we'll give you a bonus or something, maybe but I, I can't really speak to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's fair. 
The last one here is Broadcasting Live, which just came out November 22nd, 2019. This was an amazing surprise for for many of us, you know. Um, you know, we knew that you guys, you know, were playing some shows with MXPX and you know maybe a few other one-off shows. And so, what brought about the idea to to actually put this to fruition and, and put out a live album? Was this something you guys had been wanting to do over the years, or what kind of inspired that? Um, well, I'll start with saying um, our sound guy Andy Andy Alonso. Um, uh, he was doing sound with MXPX long before uh, we worked with them, and we would play these shows. You know, we, we did we played in Dallas and, and a few other cities around the country with them. And he kept saying, like, you guys need to do a live album. You guys need to, and, and we'll call it like you know he had his, his idea, like call it back from nowhere or you know or, or something like that. And um, and you know we had pressure from other people. I think Jason was another guy that kind of said some said, you know, hey, you guys should do something with this. And I think we were always kind of uncomfortable. The first show we, we, we came back and, and played, actually, MXPX was doing uh, Left Coast Live. And right. that, was, that was in 2015. And they, they had two sold-out shows at the Observatory in Orange County, which is a good-sized venue. I mean, I think, I think it's like, a, I don't know, 1,200 capacity or something like that. And um, they just put us on the bill to be cool. I mean, the show was already sold out. They didn't need to do any. They didn't need to bring us on. Like, they didn't. we weren't really going to add much to it, but they were just bros do you guys want to do this and it kind of um i think that that the fact that they were doing that kind of was like you know inspiring maybe andy to, to push us to say you guys should do that you know it was like well because he, he was like i can mix it you know you guys only have to perform it once and then this and then i was like yeah but we have to play really 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 well you know that one night that you're going to record and so um there was a lot of pressure behind it it just took some you know it, it just took a number of years and just kind of a number of um uh, talks and finally I think we just agreed to do it because we were going to headline a show you know and and um, and I think we were trying to get money together we're trying to figure out a way to afford to um, to record our own album and kind of maybe do like a self-funded type of thing and uh, we just didn't have any money you know so it was like okay if we do this if we can do this live album and if we can sell some units then potentially we'll make some money I mean um, go ahead Oh no! I was just gonna say I think I think we wanted to you know avoid doing like a GoFundMe kind of thing, just because you know with the infrastructure our band has too, we might not be able to fulfill all those you know um, 
guarantees that we might make, you know? So not wanting to disappoint anybody, we just wanted to be able to do it like in-house by ourselves without making any promises we couldn't keep. I think that was one of the things we all talked about. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's always, it's always kind of scary. You're kind of putting yourself out there. I mean, here we're a band that's played less. I mean, even, even today, like we've probably played less than 10 shows since 2015, you know, and, as loyal as a following can be. And I mean, the, the, the fans that are, that are really loyal, like we hear from them every day and they're, they're fantastic. But I mean, is that enough to really warrant, you know, doing a GoFundMe? And if you don't meet, if you don't meet your like minimum guarantee, then what happens, you know, morale right. goes out the window and, and like, you're never gonna hear from us again. You know? So, so it's kind of, it, you're kind of hanging yourself out there for disappointment. And it, and it's, um, I don't know. So Tom, Tom Tachilla kind of helped set up um, the show for us. Um, it was at a location that will not be disclosed because uh, we're not. Supposed it to can. Talk about it. it cannot be disclosed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we we uh, yeah. And I mean that show. I don't know if it sold out, but the room was. It was like a three hundred cap room, and it was a night to remember um, uh, in a lot of ways because we had a lot of. <laughs> A lot of really, really good fans that were there, and everybody, the energy was great. Um, uh, the stage experience was a little bit different than than anything I think any of us had really experienced before. It was um, uh, we we were hearing like echoes and and uh, kind of looking at each other like, are we? Where are we? Like, what's what's going on? Um, so yeah, you want to you want to talk about that at all, Jackson? Or? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> so even going back a bit further than that, like at what point were you guys, you know, back together as the original lineup? What brought this all kind of back to the forefront? You know, maybe your kids are a bit older, you've got more time or, you know, what makes you say like, okay, I think we can actually do this again after so much time away. Well, I think, I think for me, it's a, it's a few things. Like in 2008, we kind of got back together for a benefit. Um, for a friend that we all kind of had in common that had passed away um, to play a show for the first time. And it was really, you know, it was somber and sad to have lost somebody, but it was also really nice to see a bunch of old friends and feel that chemistry again. Um, After 2008, you know, again, we've all got families and, and jobs and we all get busy, but when the opportunity came up to do that um, observatory show with MXPX, um, I think that we we all just jumped on board wholeheartedly and, you know, thought, well, hey, you know what, if, if we've got the time to do this, maybe we can kind of keep chugging along. And um, sorry, I have a ring doorbell that probably just interrupted that. But anyway, no, um, but, you know, long story short, we, we all miss playing with each other. We're all, you know, creative people and we have really supportive, awesome families and you know, enjoyed it so much. We started, you know, turning out tunes too, when we would practice for these shows. Um, we were playing with Jonah, um, who was on far from nowhere, um, with all the shows. And, and so, you know, we developed some chemistry there and started doing some writing. And, um, I think, you know, filling the gaps, Jeremiah, I think it just started developing from, from there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Left Coast Live was kind of what brought us back. I mean, from, I mean, we had done a couple shows over the last few years. I think we played, uh, we, we did that, the show for Randy and then we did the show, uh, I think Face to Face was doing, uh, they were getting ready for like Bamboozle Festival or something. And they asked us to play with them at the, at the glass house on like a Thursday night. And we were like, yeah, 
they don't say no to that. So we did that. Um, and I think we did some, um, I, we played the chain reaction one time. I think it was like probably 2012. And I, it got to a point where I think all, all of us were kind of like, well, we're, we're kind of like pedaling uphill here. Like we, we have the desire to, and we love it, but it's still hard with the families. Like we still have really young kids. And I think uh, about 2015 was, it was kind of like, let's just, you know, let's just enjoy this and play, play these couple shows. And um, I think that the response was great and um, the experience was great and just being around each other again. And kind of, I think the kids got to the age where it was kind of like there was that freedom where we, we didn't really have to stress as much about mm, that. Yeah. And, and so like as opportunities came forward, it was kind of like, well, we can't do that because I'm not going to fly and be away from my wife for a weekend, you know, to like go play. You know, it's, it's hard to drag myself away from the family when I'm working, you yeah. know, 40, 60 hours a week, you know, um, so uh, they were, they, they actually flew our wives out to a show that we did. And it was kind of like all of us like hanging out in, you know, I think it was in Dallas, right? Something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and just, it, it was, it was just, it was just, a, it was just a good time. It was just like, man, like this is what, so, and that kind of, um, that kind of revitalized us a little bit. And yeah, I mean, it got back to like, let's, let's maybe start writing and maybe start feeling out, um, what is it that um you know maybe we should create again maybe we should mm -hmm. try to do another record um and i mean at this time i mean we we weren't familiar with the record industry at all you know i mean the last thing we did together with jackson me joe and ryan was burnout you know that was yeah, the last crazy. That, that the four yeah did. no like this is before before pro tools before itunes we're before recording Napster, on two dude. inch <laughs> yeah it we were recording on two inch tape you know Editing was done with a razor blade and a chalk marker. That's yeah, that's man. man. You guys must feel so accomplished, just you know, now knowing you've got this, you know, this <laughs> record done. Like, what, what does that feel like? I don't know if "accomplished" is the right word. Um, well, you, I'm yeah. definitely proud of what we did. I'm definitely, definitely proud. I mean, we, you know, you stumble through and you just kind of figure out, and things, things are just so different. You know, I mean, there was no, there was no social media when we were touring before. I mean, America Online, maybe, like, if you consider that social media, you know, where you could, like, get into a chat room or something. But, like, there was no Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff when we were touring before. So the world is just different. And, and so we, we're just kind of stumbling through. And we're just like, dude, we love to write music. But, like, how do we go about doing this? Hmm. And um, so it's a lot of, it's a lot of, like, trial and error. And it's a lot of, um, you know, this went really well. But then I don't like how this went. So, like, why, why are we going to do that? Let's not do that, you know. Um, but it is, there is a sense of accomplishment, I think, and a sense of, you know, this was a long time coming. We started recording this new album in what, October, I think October last of last year. Yeah. It's going to be almost a full year by the time it's released. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I think the last day we recorded was like what the weekend before we had to have like a total California shutdown where everybody stayed home except for essential workers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the beginning of March or the, the yeah. second week of March or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, uh, I think that's a huge ac accomplishment. You know, like you guys made it happen, right? There was there was no one else that was going to force you guys to do. You chose to, you know, sacrifice time at home and you know to to go and and write and record and you know all the energy and time that takes. So yeah, that's. I mean, you you guys are making a lot of people very happy. So thank you for uh, for making that decision. Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for listening, man, and for everybody that supported the record so far, man. It's 
it's been an incredible uh, ride so far. Uh, the pre-orders for our, our new record, um, the vinyl, went up on Wednesday. And I think as of today, there was like 12 left of one of the variants, and that's it. And yeah. we found out today because they know they're going to sell out. And um, they're actually going to press another 500. There's going to be two new variants that are going to be uh, released here either in the next couple days, probably. I got permission. I, I talked to I talked to R and R. I was like, "Is it okay to mention this?" So, uh, for those vinyl collectors out there like me, like the the new variants, they're really cool. Um, I'm excited. So those should be out pretty soon. Yeah, that's that's going to be such a great feeling. I'm sure it comes with a little bit of you know anxiety of you know I know you you know people still care, but are they going to care enough to you know spend money, especially you know during a pandemic or you know, how many people, you know, still buy merch or whatever it is, right? All these questions that you're kind of hopeful for. So it must be a great feeling just to see the such positive feedback. It's fantastic, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Good. Well, the first the first single, Whispers, is out now everywhere. So if, if you haven't heard it, go and check it out. Rotations and Frequency, is that correct? That's the title? Rotation and Frequency, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it comes out September 25th. And uh, that's that seems like way too far away, but um, yeah, look, looking forward to to some more songs hopefully being released before then. Yeah, you'll definitely hear more coming out. I think uh, they staggered them what every two weeks, Jeremiah. There should be like four songs coming out. Yeah, two to three weeks. So the next one will be the thirty first of July. Awesome, man. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, this this has been awesome. Just getting all this this insider info and. Just getting to talk with you guys has, has, has been awesome. So thanks for, for taking the time to do that. Is there any anything we missed or any anything you guys want to add? No, I'm good. Thanks for having us, though. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us, man. And uh, thanks for uh, pushing. I know this has been a long time coming. It's it, we've, we've talked about this for probably at least a year or two, right? So Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready to give up. I, I knew it was going to happen sometime and just... You know, there, there's no rush in this, right? And and this this is great timing, you know, that we can kind of build up, you know, towards the album coming out. And so we'll hopefully, you know, do some more, um, some more releases with you guys, kind of leading up to to that release. Because I know a lot of our listeners, you know, have have been asking for this, and I've got lots of friends that, you know, are always asking, "When's the Slick Shoes interview coming?" And it's like, well, it, it's coming sometime. So I'm I'm very excited about that. So. Thank you guys so much, and I look forward to uh, to talking more with you guys in the coming months as, as we get prepared for this uh, amazing release. So thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you.